Mark 14, 27 to 42. It'll be shown on the screens uh, if you'd like to follow along as I read the passage aloud. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to deeply be distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you just asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let's go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. I'm gonna start my message today with a deep cut from the early 90s. And if you grew up in the early 90s, you'll remember and recall a very magical time in the morning called Saturday morning cartoons. It was an awesome time of just viewing some of the most amazing cartoon content that that era had. And it was awesome growing up at that time because in particular, one of my favorite cartoons was one called G.I. Joe. And G.I. Joe is an uber-typical type of cartoon, especially back then. You have the good Joes fighting against the evil Cobra and predictably, they always win, the Joes, that is. And it was like that day in, day out. It was just the same cartoon, but it was awesome. As a kid, you just enjoy that awesome time. And, uh, but the way the cartoon finished always was a little interesting. It always ended with this like random like moral lesson, which was like, you know, if you, as a kid, you shouldn't share your address with strangers. Or if you see grandma on the corner, you should help her walk across. And it would always end on this line that was always so nostalgic. And obviously to me, to this day, it's, it's imprinted like deep in my heart. Which is, it would say, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. Yeah, that's why I'm not on worship team and I'm right here. <laughs> Did that. But now I know, and knowing is half 
the battle. And it's funny because as I'm watching this as a kid, the question that arises to me really quickly in frustration is, what is the other battle? What is the other half of this? And as I've gotten older, I've kind of grown to appreciate that deep imprint of what that saying does, actually, because it speaks to a really deep truth of life, which is that the knowing part, that knowing what is up ahead is always a part of what we deal with in all everyday life. And there's so many things that we know. In particular, here in the city, we love knowing more and more and more things. But what that, path, what that little phrase actually emphasizes more and more and more is that with all that knowing, there comes a point in time where the knowing becomes doing. The knowing becomes doing. And that there is a point where we all have to make the decision if we're going to do what we know or not. And I open this way because this is actually exactly where we find Jesus in this passage. If you've been tracking along with us in the book of Mark, you've realized that the disciples all know, as Jesus very well knows, what is ahead. And they all know that Jesus is going to have to go to the cross to suffer and die and resurrect. And as Mike shared last time, Jesus is doing this in the ultimate act of love for humanity. That Jesus so willingly takes on this suffering to take on what we could not do. That in the ultimate lack of love, he will offer his own very life in exchange for our life. But where we find Jesus in this passage is right there at that middle point. Where Jesus just feels, to be honest, so human. When we get to points in our lives, when we, what we know eventually has to be made into a decision, into an action. And there's so many things, to be honest, that this passage that I could get into, because it's quite deep and, and worth just sitting and meditating on. But for our time today, I actually want to focus on the topic of suffering. Because that's exactly what Jesus chooses to do in this passage for us. He chooses to suffer. And what he models here for us is worth for us to take a close look at. And so what I want to do is just spend our time today to talk about not three, but four. 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 Please have grace with me today. To go through four points of what Jesus models for us here. And the first thing is our resistance to the idea of suffering, a guide through suffering, the temptation that exists in suffering, and I'm going to close with the idea of the treasure that we find in suffering. You know, one of the things that always makes 
the topic of suffering really difficult is that in our culture that we live in today, there's, we rarely ever talk about this topic. We ever talk about the bad things that are happening in our lives. We always ask people how they're doing and the expectation is to hear the word good or I'm fine. And that's because culturally for us, everything that in a sense, especially in the city that we live in today, we're very blind or what psychologists would call intentional blindness. We actually have grown so accustomed to the environments that we are in that we're intentionally blind to the things that we don't want to process, the things that we don't want to deal with. And so we intentionally focus our minds on the things that we want to do, that that we care for. And to add a second layer to it, we are in a very unique cultural moment here in America where our feelings play such a large role in who we are. And it's not, and I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm saying this because this is an observation that myself and many other psychologists and other professors have noted that uniquely we are in a time where feelings are not just things that we're actually more heightenedly aware of, but they come down all the way down to things that define us. That I could just say the word, I feel like, and we can naturally, culturally fill in the blank with a myriad of things that as we feel actually run deeper than in other past cultures just would not have had in their experience. And as others, and I'm going to quote a brother here really quick, Jonathan Maslach puts it, he's a professor in the field of religion, ethics, and philosophy, and he wrote this book called The End of Burnout. Now, the book is about burnout. I would recommend it if that's kind of where you find yourself today. But one of the things that he puts his finger really well on is how we culturally, because of how feelings and how feelings play such a role in our minds and in our hearts, he captures about five to seven years worth of information and data. And he kind of breaks it down to help us understand how we culturally today actually cope. And he would say that we are like a person walking on stilts. If you have no idea of what stilts or someone walking on stilts looks like, there should be an image that's going to pop up. But yeah, there you go, that one, just in case. You know, I know it's a, you know, past 11, but you know. And what he would say is that we walk through life on stilts. That on the one hand, on the one hand, we, we hold reality on one of our hands, which is that, you know, like this podium right here is, is real, it's, it's reality, the, the carpet right there is black with some gray, the ceiling is kind of white and kind of clear. That's reality. And on the other hand, we have expectations of reality or dreams that we hold on the other hand. And what he would say is that normally, this is a quote from his book, in life, is the experience of holding both one's ideals and reality of one's world together. 
that when the two stilts are aligned, one can keep them together and move forward. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's possible for one to walk. However, when our stilts are misaligned, that is, when the ideal and the reality are radically different, people find themselves different ways of coping which can lead to a kind of unhealth that can be destructive. And what he later on argues in his book is he starts talking about how, in reality, we don't do actually really well with tension. When we start to feel the tension, the pull between reality and our expectations. And what he says is that because we are so susceptible in these moments of tension, when these things start to misalign, we actually cope, usually culturally, in two very specific ways. The most common way that we cope today is we actually begin to hold tighter on to our expectations, our dreams. And what that means is that we constantly project more of what we want, what we desire, and what we feel is important onto our realities. And what that begins to do is that it creates a problem for us in society, in particular in our lives. Because what we begin to do is we begin to place all these burdens, expectations for work, for our friends, and for even some of our closest family members. Expectations that shouldn't exist, but we do because we, we hold so tight onto these expectations or our dreams of reality that we end up actually, one of the drawbacks tends to be that we tend to be cynical. We criticize because it doesn't align with what we think and what we want and how we're feeling. Or on the other hand, which is the sadder reality with this, is that we hold on tighter onto reality. We begin, as we enter into seasons, where things, where the tension gets harder, where struggles become a little bit more real, that we hold on much tighter onto reality. And when we begin to do that, we begin to almost feel trapped within that reality where we begin to lose hope that the situation that we find ourselves in is the only situation. And what people have noted for a long time is that because recently in the last 10 to 15 years, we are prone to go one way or another very quickly, we could see it in the spikes of anxiety, depression, an unfortunate suicide for people that have a hard time coping in their reality. And to be honest, it's very symptomatic of our culture because we have no other outlets normally for us to do this. We're not taught as a culture to feel things out in a different way. And because of that, one of our only escapes is just to believe it almost doesn't exist even though we know that it does. And that we begin to project life and to believe that the things that happen in our lives are just bumps in the road. That it's okay. 
Everything will be fine. It's all good. There's this destination right over there. But unfortunately, life has a way of getting at us in ways that we don't expect. Or as the famous boxer, theologian, Mike Tyson puts it. Yeah, it's always good when you could quote Mike Tyson in the message. Which is that everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. When you feel like you're in control, right? That you've got everything figured out, and all of a sudden, life just hits you so hard that you don't know what to do. Amen. Mm, mm, they're preaching. And it's in those moments when you feel that, when you feel that tension, normally we feel that when we begin to sense that we're losing control. That life is not going to the plan that we probably had. And what Jesus models for us right here is right there. That we could know all these things about what's going to happen in reality. And yet, when it gets to that point of doing. When we have to make that decision, what will we choose to do? And Jesus right here models for us a way. A way for us to think and consider of what it means to walk in seasons of hardships that when they, as James 1 would put it, eventually come. And what Jesus models here for us is the practice of lament. The practice of lament. Lament is a vulnerable expression of sorrow, pain, or even confusion to God. And there's really four things I'm going to pull out of just this example that Jesus gives us in this passage that I think are really going to be important for us to consider. The first thing is, as Jesus laments, he recognizes the power of presence. The power of presence. The power of presence. Notice that in this passage, That when Jesus begins his time of being present with God the Father in prayer, he invites three of his disciples to be also present with him. And in Luke's parallel account, we know that these three disciples aren't far away. It describes it as them being a stone's throw away. What? Whatever measurement that is, it's probably about like 20 so yards. I guess it depends on how buff you are to throw that stone. But, but Luke is trying to help you to understand that they're pretty close. And the style of prayer back then was vocal. You usually would pray out loud. And what Jesus really models for here, us for here is, again, the importance and the power of presence that there is something that we're so relationally wired, that there's something so powerful of someone just being just physically present with us. And it makes sense because if you've ever been around someone that is struggling, who's in the hospital bed, sick, usually what you feel is lonely, isolated, as if no one can understand what is going on right now in your moment. And what presence does, it allows that person to come in 
and just to share the load and the burden with you. That there's something just so powerful about at times just laying your hand on someone and that exchange of warmth has such a powerful communication effect that it can only be described in the presence in the moment as you feel it and under the presence of others. The second thing that Jesus models for us here is being vulnerable or being, you know, the act of being vulnerable in front of others. It's very obvious here that in this passage, Jesus is remarkably vulnerable. He describes the state of his physical and emotional being. He's at a loss, a place of deep sorrow as he describes it, staggering. Almost you can sense the feeling that he can barely keep himself up because of what he is feeling and experiencing at that very moment. He just vulnerably shares that with God and with those three people present around him. Now, just as a little side note of vulnerability. Vulnerability, it's important to always have this thing called boundaries. And boundaries are what I call a wall with a door. Not a wall, meaning, you know, just, it just stops right here and nobody gets to know what's going on in my life. But at the same time, an invisible wall, well, no one knows where this wall is and you just share with everybody. Jesus displays the right kind of vulnerability, meaning that he allows a specific three, the three that have been very intimate and close with him during the time of his ministry. And just a little, just an aside here, which is that that's why community is so important, especially as you are here and call this place home, because that's where you find eventually these people who will be present with you in the everyday who can be present to hear you, and you discover them usually in the time and the context of a place like this. Third is prayer. Now, specifically what I want to talk about when I, when I talk about prayer is the strength that we find in prayer. What's not in this passage that, again, is in our parallel account in Luke 22 is that as Jesus is praying, it says here that the angel supernaturally somehow strengthens him. It doesn't say how in the text. It doesn't say exactly if there was food. and ex- None of that is mentioned. But there's an assumption that if you are a believer of Christ, to know that God can sometimes, and many times, to be honest, depending on where you are, can meet you in supernatural ways to supernaturally strengthen you. And I think sometimes the temptation is to kind of like spiritualize it and to read a passage like that as if, like, I don't know, like, I don't know if you guys ever watched the, again, in the anime, like Naruto, where there's like this like hidden power inside of you all of a sudden, and then someone along comes along and just unlocks that ability for you. Sometimes you spiritualize it, and we think that well, what God is just doing is he's just unlocking this hidden part inside of me. But rather, what this passage seems to indicate is that 
God is actually providing us a supernatural strength to deal with these times and these moments of temptation. But because I don't have time, unfortunately, in this message to unpack the spiritual reality of things, I'm just going to drop two passages here just to kind of just sit and meditate on that kind of would concur with what I'm saying. Isaiah 41.10 says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you and help you. Or in Philippians 4, verse 12 to 13, it says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the final thing about lamenting that I'm going to spend the rest of my time on is to ask boldly. You got to ask boldly. Be honest. Share with God exactly what you want. Jesus does actually right here. In verse 36, it says, Abba, Father, he says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want or what you will. Jesus makes quite a bold ask in this passage. Which is always, I think, where we arrive, usually when struggles, when temptations, when suffering go on for an extended period of time. We get to this point. We get to this point naturally. Where we begin to see the can, as it says here, what God can do. The ability of God and the will of God. Will he? Can he? Will he? And when we have reached that point, usually that means that we are at the end of ourselves. Because when we're at that point, we probably have realized that we no longer have control. We no longer have control over our situation, sometimes even our own thoughts that we have completely maxed out where we are physically and emotionally that gets us to a point that we ask boldly, God, can you just change what is going on? And it's interesting because when the three disciples in this passage struggle, they can't even stay awake. Jesus tells them, watch, right? Watch and pray. Don't be tempted. And then he has this line right here that says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's a very fascinating saying, right? Because when we read a passage like this, we think, if this is your first or maybe second time or you haven't been tracking along with, with Mark, you kind of forgot the story, you kind of think that these disciples are losers. Like, 
They're like the worst friends in the world. You know, Jesus is just like pouring out his heart, talking about how he's going to struggle and dying, and just, as Luke describes, just praying in sweat of blood. And they're just knocked out. They're like, these are the worst friends in the world. It kind of just reminds me a little bit of my college days where there was no Uber or Lyft, and you always find the DD designated driver to go with you. And it just so happens every once in a while that that person is a very person that just gets knocked out within like 30, 40 minutes. And you're like, what am I going to do now? And you're left with your, all of your plans just completely disrupted. And many times when we do a surface level read of this passage, we just think that these disciples are just a bunch of fools. How could they sleep on Jesus? But in fact... It's quite the opposite. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What Jesus is acknowledging is the difficulty that all suffering, all trials bring us. What's not made very plain here, but if you kind of follow along in this passage, you know, when, when passages like this get broken up and preached week after week after week, we kind of, we lose track of time. And the reality is the last few weeks, as you've been hearing about Jesus waking up, talking to this religious leader, talking to that religious leader, preparing the Passover, doing the Passover, and now here at the garden, this all happened actually within a course of around 24 hours. These disciples have been awake since most likely six in the morning. We find them in the garden at about 12 to 1 a.m. So these disciples are physically spent. They're tired. They are physically in a place they just cannot even keep their physical bodies awake. And on top of that, they are emotionally spent. As Luke twenty two forty five 45 points out, it says, it actually gives another premise for their sleep. They're asleep because they're exhausted from sorrow. They're exhausted from sorrow, which actually makes sense because, to be honest, I think they really wanted to be there for Jesus because I think they really loved him. They really wanted to be there with him. These three are also, if you've tracked through the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, and in the passage that we have today, they are only the three disciples who clearly articulated to Jesus, I will be with you. I'm hearing everything that you're saying that you're going to have to go through Jesus, and I want to be there with you. And it's tiring they are emotionally and physically spent. And that's why Jesus gives this little saying. The Spirit, meaning not the Holy Spirit, because they still haven't received the Holy Spirit. Just, you know, skip ahead a little bit to Acts 2 to get there. The Spirit here is the will, the desire. They desire to do that, but yet... The flesh is weak. What that means for us is that we have emotional and physical 
limitations. And what happens to us is that we become, in moments like that, spiritually open. Which is, if you are a, pra- you know, if you are a practicer and follower of Jesus, that's why, for example, we do things sometimes, we do the practice of fasting. It's a denial of food in order to focus more specifically on the spiritual things because we are beings that are physical and makeup, emotional and spiritual. And there's no like nice little divide of three. It's all just kind of interchanged and all intermeshed. That's why when you physically feel tired, it's kind of hard to do things like pray, right? But also when something great and amazing happens, it's easy to say thanks in those moments because we're so tied to our emotions or feelings and and spiritually that when we begin to lack in one, we typically begin to, what, lean in another way. And so when those two things are taken away, especially in times of trials and struggles and suffering, what Jesus is saying is, you're spiritually open, so watch And be careful. Watch and be careful. Because you leave yourself open to temptation. Now this makes sense if you are a Bible reader because if you would read, like for example, in the book of Luke, which is the gospel right after this one, in Luke chapter 4, Satan, the devil, approaches Jesus not when he's like nice and fat and plump after a great delicious meal with his friends. Satan doesn't approach him in the highs of talking to the Lord and just feeling just super energized and replenished and ready to go. Satan, in Luke chapter 4, approaches Jesus in the desert at the end of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting where he as where he is at his physical and in his emotional low. And in fact, the passage later on will say that he, the devil, will wait for another opportune time to do that again. And that's one thing that Jesus is helping his disciples to be aware of, is that when you are in this state, when you are spiritually open, you leave yourself open also to him. And what Satan does is he will do to you what he did to Jesus, which is that he will take a truth of life or of scripture and he will give it to you and twist it and share and tell you things like, as you're going through hardships in life, which is to begin to doubt that God's even there to begin to doubt that God actually doesn't really love you. God doesn't have the power to really do anything because if he did, he could do all these things. Look at all these things that he does for other people in scripture and look what he's not doing though for you. And those lies get washed over us all the time, especially in moments of suffering. And what Jesus is doing is he's warning his disciples. He loves them. And he's telling them, you're leaving yourself spiritually open. Be careful. Watch. Because of temptation. 
So what do we do then in moments and times where the knowing becomes doing and we're at that point with God and we're completely open asking him some really great questions? What that leaves actually is the other side, which is Jesus. And that's what Jesus actually models here in this passage. He acknowledges the can of God and the will of God. And in that moment, he says, I'm going to trust you, God. That what I'm going to experience, not this going to change the experience, but he trusts God enough that he knows that God will carry him all the way through. And that the treasure, the treasure in suffering is the opposite door, which is the door of deeper love and discovery of him and his presence. But you have to make a choice. You actually have to, to choose that. You have to choose to trust him and to hold on to him. And what Jesus is acknowledging is that it is very difficult. But he promises that through the process that he will always be with you. And in fact, see you through to see it and to experience it in a very different way. Or as Thomas Merton puts it, when he talks about when we encounter experiences like this in life, when we make a decision to trust Jesus, to trust God with our lives in these hard situations when we've met our limit. He says, we awaken not only to our realization of the immensity and the majesty of God out there as king and ruler of the universe, which he is, but also as a more intimate and more wonderful perception of him as directly and as presently present in our own being. If we are involved only in our surface existence, in externals, and in the trivial concerns of our ego, we are untrue to him and ourselves. To reach a true awareness of him as well as ourselves we give up our selfish and limited self and enter into a whole new kind of existence, discovery, an intercenter of motivation and of love that makes us see ourselves and everything else in an entirely new light. Or in other words, as James 1, 2 through 4 put it, he says... Consider it joy, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish this work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking in anything. And that last part of that phrase, lacking in anything, is this idea of wholeness. That you actually, 
if you hold on and choose to trust Jesus with whatever it is that you are losing control with, there are times of struggle and suffering, you will discover, actually, a new wholeness to yourself, a new growth and self-discovery of not just you, but of everything else around you. And begin to see reality, not in the limited scope of what we ask, but it begins to expand our scope to see reality as God sees reality. Because when we meet our limit and we allow God in, it allows us to hit his supernatural limit and to see it through because he is there caring with us in ways that we would never know unless we know and trust him. I just want to close with just being vulnerable a little bit with you as we close our time today and just to end on a thought. You know, for me, this kind of topic about suffering and enduring through hardship, you know, unfortunately, I have a lot of experience through the course of my life already. And one of the things that always comes to my mind whenever I think about this topic and the long suffering that happens is I think about my mother, who was the closest, most important person to me in my life, who I had the privilege to know and slowly watch pass at the age of 22. And I can't describe to you in that moment what it feels like to be at that point. Because as I'm sitting there in the hospital bed next to her, alone with her, at that point I know that I have reached my limit. I have physically and emotionally been present with her for so many years watching her body slowly go. And to be honest, in the moments like that, when you're so spiritually open, it's hard. I wanted to believe that everything's going to be okay. I want to believe that things are going to change, that the person in front of me, that things could even change right there in that moment, that God could do something so supernatural. And yet, that never happened. And yet, what I experienced in that moment was something very different. I remember it just in that place of openness, of just crying, of just being spent, and encountering the person of Jesus. And I can't explain it any other way but to tell you that his presence to me was as tangible as you are here with me today. And for him, in that moment, I only heard one phrase, a phrase that I've heard many people say when they've reached this point. I just heard him say that everything is going to be okay. And not because I made all the great decisions in life of having to navigate dealing with my mother's business and all those things that she had associated with her, a sister who had barely graduated high school, aging grandparents I had to take care of. There was a lot 
in my plate at that time that I had no clue what to do. And I'm sure I made a lot of bad decisions. And the problem that I realized looking back is I many times felt stuck in those decisions. And sometimes even as I navigated having that peace and that certainty, I made so many mistakes. So many times I veered my eyes away and there'd just be moments in time where Jesus would leave me so open, just kind of like how he is here with Peter, where Peter shares his heart out and he's talking to Jesus and saying, I'm never gonna do this. And Jesus straight to his face tells him, yes, you will. And he falls asleep on him again and again. And Jesus knows all of this. And yet, he says this little phrase at the end that gives all of us such deep comfort. And he says, I'll see you, I'll see you in Galilee. I'll see you in Galilee. Meaning that Jesus knows what you're going to do. He knows the ways you're going to respond. And yet, he still chooses that as you journey, even away from him, he will still be right there waiting for you. Jesus is only one choice away. And today, that's the invitation that I have for you. I don't know if if you are going through a struggle or not. I don't know if you, like me, have reached moments in life where you're just maxed out. Or maybe you feel like it's, I don't know if I can, I've said, I've done a lot of different things. Just know that just like Peter, that Jesus is right there saying, I'll be waiting for you. And he is right there waiting for you to trust him, for him to show you a new reality and a new idea of what it means to live beyond what you are experiencing right now. Let's pray.